0: Thank you, Alan. Um, Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we we come to you in prayer uh, to worship you first and foremost, to recognize that while we don't always recognize that you are the giver of all good things, you're the source of all truth, would you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive what you have for us from your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. And for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning, uh, Christ community. My name is Reed Kappel, and I serve here as the pastor of high school ministries uh, here at the Leewood campus. And um, I'm very excited to be here this morning. And uh, I wanted to, to share a phenomenon with you. It's a cultural phenomenon that um, I think we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form where you have, you have an expectation of how something should look how something should play out, uh, a certain situation that you've kind of played over in your mind, and you are just brutally awakened to the fact that what you perceive to be true or what you want doesn't match up with reality. And we've, we've all experienced this, and this is such a common human experience that. The internet has documented this. And on one of my many adventures on the internet, uh, I, I've come across that these things are called memes. Some of you are probably familiar with what a meme is, but it, a picture that has some words on it that kind of describe a certain emotion or setting or situation that essentially documents this kind of ex- expectation versus reality phenomenon. And so you've probably been in a situation, you know, moms or dads, if you're making cookies or a cake for your kid's birthday and you want something to look beautiful, it doesn't come out the way. And so you've got Cookie Monster... Beautiful cookie, that's what you expect to happen, but what comes out is, you know, it just looks more like, more like something that Cookie Monster ate and then regurgitated. Uh, just didn't, didn't work out. Uh, we, we've seen commercials for fast food, you know, like the, the Big Mac looks like something that is fit for a king, uh, that would be Burger King, but anyway, the whole point is you see these burgers, they look just opulent, you want to eat them, and so Arby's, delicious, uh, that doesn't look like cheese, but then what you end up getting is something that, yeah, once again, does not look very appetizing. Um, the, oh, the next one, so, so we've all been in a situation as well. Like, you know, this year I'm, I'm setting New Year's resolutions. I'm going to run like 18,000 miles and read like 40 billion books. But what ends up happening is just kind of, oh, i just do this again, I guess. <laughs> I was working on this balancing act. Uh, just doesn't match up with reality. Uh, you've probably purchased a puppy or a, you know, kitten or a, I was gonna say goldfish. That doesn't work for this analogy. But where you wanna, oh, like I cuddle up with my dog. It's just adorable. Isn't that cute? But what ends up happening is more just like this, like jujitsu move. That, it's just not, not as pleasant. And then, and then, lastly, if you're, if you're like me, you, you wish you could grow just a, a just a masculine mustache, look like some muscle man from 1920s. But what ends up looking like is just, it's just sad. That, that is what our mustaches end up looking like. And so I have to vicariously live through other men's facial hair. That's what I do. So I'm always encouraging men and women to grow out their facial hair because I just, <laughs> I encourage that. But like I said, we've all, we've all experienced this phenomenon where we have a perception of how things ought to be or, or, or what we want them to be, but they don't really pan out into reality. And so, and, and, and we all experience it. We know it intuitively. We know it from experience. And, and no one would be taken seriously if all of their decisions in life were based exclusively upon their expectations of reality. No one would take this person seriously. But, but yet we find very commonly in ourselves and the lives of others that, that we kind of grant ourselves permission to play the role of, of the definer, of the determiner of, of truth, of authority, of morality, and even of God in some ways. We find this in ourselves and in others as well. And it's quite common in our day to, to hear someone say something to the effect of, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And that's great that you believe that, but I believe something different, and that's okay. And, and, and this idea of, of viewing the world in this way, is the, the fancy word is relativism. The idea that truth is relative to the beholder, that, that we interpret what is true for us, and you may come up with a different conclusion, but that's okay, and we can live in harmony. But There's something about the relativistic way of seeing reality that is actually very empty and hollow and doesn't end up accomplishing the promise that we thought it made us. And and I want to be clear, too, that when I'm talking about relativism, I'm I'm not drawing a line between the church and relativists. Relativism is a human problem. We all find ourselves relativizing, picking and choosing what we want to be true about ourselves, about life, about God, etc., and we pick and choose, and we find this within the church and outside the church. So, so just to be clear, as we jump into this morning's text, we are not making a line between the church and relativists. We all find ourselves playing this game of relativizing truth, morality, goodness, and justice. And regardless of where you are in the faith spectrum, we may do this more, more than others, But whether you're a Hindu in Calcutta, whether you're an atheist in Berlin or a Christian here in Kansas City, we all play this game of relativizing things. So the question we must all ask, though, regardless of where we are in the faith spectrum, is this: Do we believe, do we believe that freedom is truly found in our ability to do whatever we want? And is truth truly in the eye of the beholder? Is freedom truly found in us being free to do whatever we want? And is truth truly in the eye of the beholder? Or another way of saying it would be summarizing like this. So truth is relative. How's that working out for you? That's, that's kind of my question for us to ponder, is that if we are the determiners and definers of truth, morality, and goodness, does that actually bring about the result we think it will accomplish? And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 18, and, and, and as we've been doing this fall, we've been listening in on Jesus as he listens to various characters in the, in the Gospel of John. We've seen how Jesus listens to the skeptic, the outcast. This morning, we're going to look in the Gospel of John chapter 18 as Jesus listens to the great relativist, Pontius Pilate. Now, a little note, just to be clear, we're not talking about a person who flies airplanes, okay? This is not a pilot, nor is this the man who invented Pilates, even though it's spelled similarly, uh, nor is it, contrary to my belief as a child, pronounced Poncho's pilot. It's like, as a kid, I was just like, who's Poncho, and why does he have his own personal airline? But just to clarify, that's not who we're talking about. So uh, what I'd like to do is just kind kind of bring us up to speed of where we are in the Gospel of John. So John chapter 17, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying what is referred to as the high priestly prayer. And it's an environment of great agony and sorrow. Jesus is facing his very imminent death. And he's praying in a very sorrowful manner. And he moves from this environment of agony to another environment of agony. As we jump into chapter 18, Jesus is betrayed by one of his very own disciples, Judas Iscariot. And Judas has come with a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus on these trumped-up charges that he is a threat to Roman rule and that he is a problem for society. And so Jesus is taken in the middle of the night to the house of Caiaphas, the great high priest of of the Jewish people, and he's interrogated and questioned. And he's questioned without any eyewitness, which according to to Jewish tradition and their civil laws, you had to have an eyewitness in order to bring someone to the high priest. But the Jews are kind of choosing to forego that rule. They have this shady, no pun intended, uh, case against Christ in the middle of the night and then they take him to Pontius Pilate. And the Jews know they have no case against Jesus. They know that, that their, their only objection is theological. And, and they know that Pilate won't listen to this case unless there is some legitimate cause and legitimate reason that Jesus is a threat to Roman rule. So Jesus is brought before Pilate. And, and, and Pilate knows they don't have a case, and the Jews know they don't have a case. And you see this in John 18, verses 29 through 31. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And then Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so what's interesting is that the Jews don't really answer Pilate's question. He says, like, why are you bringing him here? They use kind of the, I can't believe you would ask me that question line. It's like, well, if he weren't evil, we wouldn't have brought him here. And it worked. That line worked on Pilate. He's like, oh, good point, bring him in. And so, so he brings Jesus in. He interrogates him on this trumped-up charge that he is a legitimate threat to Roman rule. And, and what we see is that G, uh, G, Pilate begins to ask Jesus a line of questions. And instead of kind of reading through the text, I thought it would be helpful to see this interaction between Jesus and Pilate as portrayed in uh, the film, The Passion of the Christ, which the dialogue comes straight from the Gospel of John. So let's listen in on this interaction between Jesus and the relativist, Pontius Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus three questions. The first question is this, are you the king of the Jews? And, and, and these questions that Pilate asks at face value on paper, or papyrus, if you will, uh, on paper, they, they look like good questions. They're very important questions that every person should ask. He says, first, are you the king of the Jews? Which at the heart of it is a question of who is the person of Jesus? Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? But Pilate isn't asking this question because he's genuinely intrigued. He, he's not curious about Jesus. His questions are actually more out of irritation and, and, and there's a condescending tone to them. But the first question, are you the king of the Jews? Which is the question, who is Jesus? The second question is, what have you done? Which on paper is the question of, what is the work of Jesus? What, what has he accomplished with his life? Why is he here? But Pilate is asking this question more out of shock. And incredulity, he's just like, What have you done to make your own people wish you were dead? What have you done? He's shocked by this man. And then lastly, he asks, What is truth? But as you notice, this question is not asked with sincerity. Pilate is not coming to Jesus like, What what is truth, Jesus? He's not interested in hearing Jesus' opinion. He says it in this mocking tone, Truth, what is truth? And he doesn't even stick around to hear an answer. He just walks away. And so Pilate, in asking very important questions, is actually asking them with the wrong motives and the wrong tone. We see this. I I just want to read that that last verse, uh, the, uh, the end of that interaction, in 37 through 38 in chapter 18. For this purpose, Jesus says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Like I said, he's not even interested in hearing Jesus' explanation. And what we see is that Pilate is our, our great relativist. There's no such thing as truth. How would you believe in such an absurd thing? And so what I'd like to do this morning for the remainder of our time is I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at, at relativism. And, and, and like I said, I don't want us to look at it as, as this is what other people believe, but, but evaluate in our own hearts where we find ourselves being relativistic. But I want us to see the inconsistency of relativism, relativism, the inadequacy of relativism, and then see how in all of this, the irony of the gospel is played out through this narrative. So first, the inconsistency. Now on on paper, the idea of of relativism, the idea that everyone's truth is equally valid, we all get along, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, it sounds great, it's attractive and appealing, but... It's, it's not really functional. I mean it's, it's actually not too dissimilar from my daughter's YMCA soccer league where you know like everybody gets a t-shirt, you're on a team, there's no score, everybody wins, you get a popsicle afterwards, it's great. You know which just so you know all the dads are keeping score. I think you all know that right? It's just like yeah you're all winners. <laughs> my kids team beat your kids team. You know we, we're all keeping score but the point is, is that it sounds great. We're all winners, we all get popsicles, your truth is as equally valid as mine. But, but no one actually believes this. No one can actually functionally live this out. You, we can pick and choose certain things, but there are situations in life where if you come with your expectation of truth and it's encountered with the truth of reality... It's not going to match up. I mean, it doesn't work in fifth grade math. You know, like two plus two is four. I think it's a cheetah. Like, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. The point is is that there are certain things that must be true and that we all adhere to, we all agree to, but for some reason there are certain situations, and the situations are the big ones, like God, morality, authority. Why, Why is it these situations that we allow ourselves the permission to define what is true and right? It doesn't work. But in fact, the, even the claim that there is no truth, like, well, there's no such thing as truth, well, that in and of itself is a claim of truth. And it defeats itself. There's a philosopher, whose name is Norman Geisler, and, and he articulates and kind of points the inconsistency of relativism out. He says this, no relativist can say it is absolutely true that this true, it, it, no relativist can say it is absolutely true that this is true for me. If truth can only be relative, then it must only be relatively true for him. But wait a minute, that can't be claimed by any absolute sense either. It can only be relatively true that it is relatively true for him. Should we keep going? And, 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 and there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek there, but, but he's trying to point out that there's an inconsistency in viewing truth in this way that says, I determine what is true for me or there's no such thing as truth. Now, that is a bit of an extreme case, the idea that there's no truth out there. The other flavor of relativism that may be more common is that, well, it's not so much that there isn't truth, but that all paths lead to truth, that your truth, your religion, your worldview leads to the same end. We're all experiencing God, whether who he, she, it, they is, we're all getting to the same end. And once again, this sounds appealing and attractive, but it also doesn't hold water. The parable that's told to kind of articulate this view, which I'm sure some of you heard, is the parable of the blind man and the elephant, where these blind men are wandering through the jungle, and they come across an elephant. But obviously they're blind, so they can't see the elephant. But each of them is experiencing a different part of the elephant. One has the tusk, one has the, the trunk, one has the tail or the, the leg. And so the guy with the, the, the trunk is saying, oh, it's a snake, you know, it's long, it's flimsy, and it's moving around, this is clearly a snake. The other blind man who has the... Tr- uh, the, the the tusk, is saying, no, no, it's a spear, it's, it's, it's hard and firm and pointy at the end. And the third one is like, what, are you blind? No, it's a tree, <laughs> because they're blind. Uh, but he, you know, he has the leg of the elephant, he's like, no, it's, it's firm and it's, it's fixed, it's clearly a tree. And the parable goes on to say, all of them are experiencing the elephant, but they are defining it in different ways. In the same way, your religion is defining God in one way, mine defines another, but we're all getting to the same God. And once again, at face value, it sounds like it works, but the problem is, is that it assumes knowledge of the elephant. No one can claim that there is an elephant unless they see the whole picture. And what's interesting is that the relativist who says there, aren't, there isn't just one truth, there are multiple truths, they typically claim that the person who says there's one truth is arrogant which that very well may be the case in some situations. But it is even more arrogant for them to claim that I see all paths and they all lead to the same end. How can you claim that kind of transcendent, infinite knowledge from your perspective? To claim that all paths lead to the same end is just as arrogant, if not more so. Relativism is inconsistent. And we see that played out even in the lives of the Jews in John 18. When they bring Jesus to Pilate, in verse 28, uh, it reads this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So let me get this straight. You are okay with... You say, you know what... We can't enter Pilate, we appreciate the hospitality, I'm sure you have some nice cookies or whatever, but we have to stay out here because we don't want to defile ourselves, it's the Passover. But would you mind taking this innocent man and slaughtering him to death for us? Do you see the inconsistency there? By them being the determiners of when they agree with God's laws, they're picking and choosing when it's convenient for them. God is not the standard, they are. And this is where we all, whether you're in, you've been in the church for a long time, whether you're a skeptic, whatever, we all find ourselves picking and choosing, and we find ourselves living a very inconsistent life. We have to be very careful before we shake our heads at Pilate or the Jews. We have to see that we all are guilty in some way, shape, or form of this kind of inconsistent relativism. Now, it's not just inconsistent, but it is also inadequate. It doesn't actually accomplish what we think it will accomplish in our lives. And what we find is that in our attempts to be free of of authority, of constraints, in our attempt to be the ones who define what is true, right, good, just, and beautiful, we actually find ourselves less satisfied, less compassionate, and less free. And to see an example of this, we need to look no further than Disney's movie Frozen. Frozen. I, I, have, I have three girls. I don't know why I did that. That's so weird. Three girls. Whatever. I don't know. How, how do you guys do three? I've been doing this. I don't know why I do that. Is that so odd? Three. Anyway, um, three three girls, um, and, which means scientifically I've seen Frozen 84 times, and I have all the songs memorized, but, but in, in the, the song Let It Go, which we've all been trying to let go of, <laughs> we, we see this kind of relativism, and, 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 and here in the song, it's uh, Queen Elsa, she's singing, It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. That is funny, isn't it? And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. Now, what's interesting, like, we sing this song, our kids sing this song, you sing this song, you all do. It's in your head right now, whether right or wrong. Um, But but we sing this song and this idea of, I want to be free to all social constraints. I want to be free of authority that that bears me down. And she gets what she wants. She's free of the social constraints of her friends, of family, of culture, society, to do whatever she wants. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm finally free. Free to live in isolation in this dark, cold ice castle with a snow demon. Like, that's not life, (laughs) lady. Wake up. But the point is, the point is, is that? Well, actually, I really appreciate, Frozen, that that's actually not the narrative or the purpose of the story. I actually appreciate that she's kind of like, you're the idiot. This is not how life is to be lived. But this is what we all think we want. We all long to have a life of free of, of social constraints, of authorities. We want to be the determiner of what is right and true. But if nothing, if nothing is grounded or absolute, then we will inevitably find ourselves waffling and, and oscillating with our convictions and beliefs picking and choosing what we believe, even our own beliefs that we have formed. Because if we are only compelled to to do good, to seek justice, to care for other people, if we're only compelled to do those things because they comply with our standards, we will find ourselves bending and altering our convictions if those things get in the way of what we want. We find and we think that, that, that if I'm free of these things, I'll finally get what I want, but what we find is that we will even go against our own convictions if it means they are standing in the way of what our hearts long for. And we will find ourselves living such inconsistent lives that if, if we think that, that we're free to live for anything, we will actually find ourselves living for nothing. With so many options to choose from, if I am the determiner, what we find is that we don't actually experience freedom We're actually more paralyzed. And and I want to illustrate this in a few ways. First, I want to share a secular example, and then another from scripture with the life of Pilate. Um, in, In his book, The Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz, he's a psychologist, he talks about how he kind of questions the conventional thinking that more options, more choices, creates more freedom. He says that's actually not the case. He says autonomy and freedom of choice are critical to our well being. And choice is critical to freedom and autonomy. Nonetheless, though modern Americans have more choice than any group of people ever has before, and thus presumably more freedom and autonomy, we don't seem to be benefiting from it psychologically. What what Schwartz is saying is this. By thinking we have more options to choose from, we don't have more freedom, we have less. And he goes on on to say in his book that, that actually there are situations where the more options we have, there's a correlation between a plethora of options, and and that resulting in us not only making the wrong decision, but sometimes not making a decision at all. And so the opposite is actually true, that the more options we end up having, the less likely we are to make a decision. I have trouble enough in the dollar menu at McDonald's, much less like trying to decide, what am I living my life for? How do I determine what is right, good, and beautiful, and just? Let me illustrate it another way. Imagine a train on a train track. Not hard to imagine. Got it, okay. A train on a train track. And the train, the train is limited to go only where the tracks go, right? It can't go left, it can't go right, it can only go where the tracks are going. So it is limited. It doesn't have much freedom in the sense that it can go wherever it wants to go, but it is free to function and flourish as a train. It doesn't have the choice to go left or right, it has to go straight. It has less options, but it is freer to be what it was supposed to be. Take the same train, put it in a field, a wide open field, wide open spaces. It now has less constraints, but is now less free to be what it was designed to be. You see that? So so in our minds, we think more options, more freedom, but it actually results in some ways in us being more enslaved to our desires. Let me share a biblical example of this. So Pilate himself, the great relativist, who just mocked Jesus for saying, truth, what is truth? Comes before the the Jews and says this in, in chapter 19, verses 4 through 8. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Like I said, Pilate just mocked Jesus for the idea that there could be anything as absurd as truth but he comes before the the Jews and says, I find no guilt in him. Three times he says this. He says at the end of chapter 18, I find no guilt in him. And then twice here, the beginning of chapter 19, I find no guilt in him. And Pilate, the great relativist, is stuck. And his own relativistic devices are thrown back into his face. Because why? He personally believes Jesus is innocent. But he is also stuck with the reality that he knows that truth, morality, is defined by the majority and he is rendered useless and ineffective in doing anything about it. He knows Jesus is innocent, and yet he complies with the cries of the Jews because he knows that what is right and what is good is determined by the majority. His own relativistic devices he can't even live by. And what's interesting is that Pilate, in his attempt to try to secure some civil um, peace and to avoid a political nightmare by, by freeing Jesus... He frees a known criminal, a a true threat to Roman rule. So in his attempt to try to maintain peace, he creates havoc by letting Barabbas go, a known insurrectionist, a known criminal who is an enemy to Rome. And he punishes Jesus, the innocent. And what we see here is that even though Pilate has the options, technically, he's the person with the most political power, he's also the most useless in trying to make Jesus innocent to declare him innocent and free him. And what we see is that when you live with this kind of relativistic mindset, I'm I'm not saying that you can't be good. I'm not saying that you can't live a moral life. But what you lose is a foundation for real moral obligation. You can be a good person. You can be a, a, a civil citizen. But without an absolute standard of truth and authority, we lose any real obligation for doing good. And if the the majority is what defines what is right, well then, what if the majority is wrong? What if the majority comes to a conclusion that is severely dangerous and damaging to the human race? What we have to see is that if we keep going in this path, it will not be difficult for us to realize that if truth will not make right, then might will make right. Right? And, and this has been kind of confirmed throughout history, both within Christian circles and non-Christian circles, most notably by the, the famous German nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who he said, all things are subject to interpretation. That's a relativist claim right there. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power and not truth. It's not, it's not, it's not an issue of truth, it's an issue of power. We declare that murder is wrong, not because that is a truth, but because we have determined as a society that this is morally wrong and we've agreed upon it as a majority. But is that really, is that really what our hearts feel? It, I mean, do we look at things like, like murder? Do we look at things like child molestation and rape and genocide and say, this is wrong because we've all agreed on a majority standpoint that it is wrong? there is something deep within us that says, no, this, this cannot and should not be. And so if we continue in this slippery slope of saying, I want to pick and choose here what I believe to be right and wrong. I want to pick and choose here what God is and who God is and how he should act. It's not difficult for us to see ourselves making compromises to our own convictions and beliefs in order to get what we truly want. And that may even mean going against things that are ultimately good for us. Now let me pause for a second and just, as we've, as we've said in this series, this is all about Jesus listening to certain people so that we might listen to them. And so a question for us is, what does it look like for us to listen to the relativists, both the relativists within ourselves and those that we encounter on a daily basis? And I'll say just three quick things. The first is listen, which is an obvious one, but, but truly listen. Don't just wait for your turn to speak. Actually sit and understand Seek to understand. Don't seek to be understood. Try to understand where are they coming from. This is kind of a cliche phrase, but you know, you got, you got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen twice as much as you talk. You know, that's a good saying. You know, my grandpappy said that. I've never called him my grandpappy. I don't know why I said that. But we should. We should listen twice as much as we talk. Or you could, this, this is an interesting one, so it'll blow your mind. The words silent and listen are spelled with the same letters huh Uh, yeah that's amazing but we should there should be a sense in which we we should listen more than we talk we should be silent more than we're speaking to truly understand the people we're trying to engage in conversation the second thing would be ask ask more questions than make statements if you can ask if you can make a statement by asking a question do that because a statement especially with a relativist divides the lines like well that's that's just a definitive statement i don't really believe in those but when you ask questions you're inviting them into a dialogue as much as you can begin with questions with before statements and then thirdly seek seek some common ground that you both agree upon what is an injustice that you both look at and say this should not be and start from there and ask the question why why do you why do you object to this why are you against this From what basis are you drawing this from? And see where that conversation goes. So those are just a few things I would share uh, as it comes to listening to the relativists. We want to listen. We want to listen to them so that they might hopefully one day, and we might hopefully one day fully hear and listen the voice of the one who testifies to the truth. So, So we've seen the inconsistency of relativism, we've seen its inadequacy in actually accomplishing what we want. And throughout this narrative, we've also seen, or we will see, the irony of the gospel. That throughout this narrative, we've seen the irony of the gospel on display, particularly in these ways. That the one who submitted to the authorities is the one who has the ultimate authority over all. That the one mocked as a king is truly our king. That the one criticized for testifying to the truth truly is the source of all truth. That the one judged as a threat is our only hope. That the one condemned as guilty is truly innocent. And the one who is introduced by Pilate as just a man, behold the man, is truly the son of man sent by God for all men. The great irony of the gospel The great irony of the gospel is this, is that when we are freer to live for our own desires, we find ourselves enslaved to them. But when we submit ourselves to the authority of God, shackled by his grace, we experience freedom that we couldn't outside of the gospel. It's so backwards. It's the irony of the gospel. But we think that if we can live for ourselves and have freedom to choose for ourselves and make our own decisions and standards, we will be free. But we actually find ourselves enslaved. So what if truth wasn't relative? What if we could know that truth? And what if truth wasn't an argument, but it was a person? There's a fear, I think, in all of us and a hesitancy to to embrace an absolute truth and an absolute authority because we haven't seen it modeled well. We've seen it abused. Whenever there's absolute power, it's corrupted. But in the gospel, we see something very different, that the one who had absolute authority used it not for his own gain, but for our good. That as he was being punished and mocked unjustly, he did not revile in return. That instead of using his power and authority for the sake of, 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 to be self-serving and and to be corrupt, instead he uses it for compassion by displaying self-sacrifice. And we see this in in 1 Peter 2, and I want to close with this. In 1 Peter 2, we see this irony of Jesus' authority and how he uses it for our good. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The relativist in all of us believes that in order to be free, we must be able to live how we want. And the relativist in all of us believes in such a way that they make their lives look better, but the Christian believes in such a way that they make their lives look worse so that they might be freed from the work of Christ. The Christian seeks to submit to authority to find freedom. The relativist in all of us seeks freedom in doing what we want and in the end finds that they are not free at all. As he said, the great irony of the gospel is that the freer we are to live for our own desires, the more enslaved we are to those desires. But when we shackle ourselves by his grace to his authority, we are free. So are you willing to find your freedom in fully submitting yourself to the authority of Christ, to the one who submitted himself to the authorities? Are you willing to trust that he is the ultimate standard of truth? Are you willing to hear his voice and be on the side of truth and life? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we ask that you would open our eyes to see where we have said in our hearts, what is truth? We all say it in different ways, Lord, and we ask that in this moment you would show us where we, where we are being the determiners of our own faith, of our own truth, of our own right and good standards. Speak to us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I invite you all to just, just take a moment. There, there's a few questions that will be on the screen just, just to kind of prompt us to reflect. I mean, at times, after you hear a message, it can kind of, kind of go in one ear, out the other, but let's just take a moment to reflect and ask ourselves these questions. Where do we find the relativists in us? Where are we asking the question of Jesus? What is truth? And so there are a few questions that come up, and I invite you to engage those questions, reflect on them, pray over them, uh, and see what is God trying to show in your heart where we might be relativizing and choosing what we want to believe about God and ourselves. So take a moment and respond.